0: Good morning, Fellowship. It's Great to see everybody this morning. Uh, my name's Larry Kayser, and I am the pastor of marriage ministry here at Fellowship, and I also serve on the elder board. And uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, our uh, regular teaching team is Rob Sweet and Lloyd Shadrach. I'm filling in this morning, so you may want to try this again, another Sunday. Um, but I'm very excited and glad to be up here uh, today And, you know, we get a chance to, John 17, this whole, this whole study for me, um, one of the sweet things about this portion of our study in John is this chapter has felt a little bit like uh, you get this picture into Jesus' humanity just a bit because it's like we're watching him or listening to him kneeling in the corner of the room writing in his prayer journal. And if you were to look at anyone's prayer journal, one of the things that you would learn about them really quickly is that you would learn what was important to them. And if we were looking at what's important, John 17 is this really amazing glimpse into the humanity of Jesus and what mattered to him as he is getting ready to walk into the most difficult Traumatic and I'm sure frightening part of his time here on earth, not too far from the arrest and the crucifixion. So this is what's on his heart. And I I love, I, I like to remember and ponder the humanity of Jesus because it helps me understand how much he can understand us. Because he felt so many almost all of the same things so at the beginning of John 17 he begins this prayer with the topic of glory his glory and the father's glory and then as he moves to praying for his disciples first that the father would get them safely home that's a great prayer And then last week, Rob took us through verses 13 through 19, and he prayed specifically that the Word, which is both Jesus himself and the Word, would form them and transform them. So this morning, we are coming to the last six verses in John 17, we're gonna go over John 20, uh, the verses 20 through 23, and then next week we're going to finish up the last three so i want to take a moment again and read through the three we're going to cover today and then we'll we'll unpack it so i do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one just as you father are in me and i in you that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me the glory that you've given me i have given to them that they may be one even as we are one i in them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved loved them even as you love me so at least four times in those three verses Jesus is praying about oneness and unity. Where do you think the first real mention of unity comes in the Bible? Lots of you would know this. We go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. So in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast or cleave to his wife, and they shall become... One flesh. You know, this is the only command that Adam received from God concerning Eve. This is it. To leave and cleave and to pursue oneness, to pursue unity. That's what was on God's heart with the tiniest little battle formation around unity called marriage. So we all know, most of us in here would know, that uh, at some point that ideal was essentially attacked in the garden by Satan, as he appeared in the form of some kind of creature, a serpent, and really he is then and is today the animating force behind evil. He just is. You know, and the attack that he, that he uh, led in the garden, it wasn't an attack done with large armies or powerful weapons, but it began with a simple question. Did God say, that's all he did. He asked a couple of questions. He begins with a suggestion rather than an argument. This suggestion not only keeps Eve's defenses down, but it smuggles, into the assum- and smuggles in the assumption that God's word might just be subject to just our own opinion or judgment. And when Satan introduces doubt in our minds, as he did in Eve's mind, we immediately begin to open the possibility of believing something else. So the serpent subdued the enemy without really fighting, simply by temptation and suggestion, distortion of truth, even outright lies. But the impact was colossal, catastrophic. It led to division. It led to the destruction of oneness, unity, It was followed by fear and mistrust and guilt and shame and ultimately isolation. And we've paid the consequences of that since the very beginning of time. So in our passage this morning, we find ourselves on the outskirts of another garden. Jesus is about to step from this upper room, go across the Kidron Valley and into the Garden of Gethsemane. He's about to put the message of salvation into the hands of his disciples and carry it and and ask them to carry it to the rest of the world. And he knows precisely how the enemy is going to impede, disrupt, and destroy, seek to destroy the purposes of God. So the first blow that came to the church, not surprisingly, was persecution, but that only scattered the church and actually made it stronger. But what comes next is what he is continuing to use even today because its effects against the work of God's kingdom are greater than an endless supply of military weapons and endless strategies. And really, it's the very same strategy he used at the very beginning. Satan is the father of lies he is a deceiver lying is his native language and you know lest you think that you know the stories of division and strife are just out there i mean it's happening in churches everywhere it's happened in this church It's happening in this church and you know jesus knowing exactly how the enemy is going to come against the church jesus is praying and his prayer is meeting the enemy right at the point of his greatest attack, which makes this part of Jesus' prayers so necessary for you and me and so sobering. Unity, unity. So the question the text poses really, is: are we participating with God in answering Jesus' prayer for unity or are we lending the evil one a hand You know in our text this morning even these three verses scholars have seen for years uh, what they would call parallelism so each verse essentially connects to another verse in the three verses and they are saying this essentially the same thing twice so we're going to try to look at the parallel verses together as we walk through it and the first ones you know really speak of the promise the hope the promise in all of this so In in verse 20, it says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Like we know who that is, right? Those who will believe in me. We're all sitting here. Those who will believe. So Jesus is already praying for us. And then verse 22 says, The glory that you've given me, I have given to them. I'll show you in a moment how those two verses connect or how they parallel to each other but i've recently i haven't got the book all the way done yet but i started a book called the great d churching and i actually got interested in reading it because one of the authors his name is jim davis and he's a friend of anani's he and his wife speak on the family life uh, weekend to remember speaking team so we've gotten to know them a bit over the last few years so they've written this book this great d de- ch- d de- d churching book it's the largest and most comprehensive study of its kind So let me show you just one quote. It's kind of a long quote, but let's read through it quick. It says, in the United States, we are currently experiencing the largest and fastest religious shift in the history of our country. About 40 million adults in America today used to go to church, but no longer do, which accounts for around 16% of our adult population. For the first time in the eight decades that Gallup has tracked American religious membership, More adults in the United States do not attend church than attend church. More people have left the church in the last 25 years than all the new people who became Christians from the First Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening, and the Billy Graham Crusades combined. When we read things like this, it's pretty easy to get discouraged or even scared No question, you know, the church here in America, in some ways, is at an all-time low, I think, in terms of relevance in the eyes of the world outside of the church. You know, it struck me, too, that he pointed out that that quote or their survey is over the last 25 years. You know, it's our church. You know, we've celebrated our 25th anniversary. So in the 25 years that we've been here, this has been the impact. This is what's happened around our whole country so the church has been under attack and you know most of the attacks seem to aim at division integrity you know arguments over doctrinal things political things that just continue to cause strife and division among us but here's the good news and i you know Jesus in John 17 was praying for us, praying for all those who would come after him. The church is never going away. This is God's God's mandate. This is God's purpose. This is God's plan. So the church isn't going away. And we're sitting here, again, because Jesus prayed us here on the night he was betrayed. So let's go back to that first parallel between 20 and 22. I do not ask ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, the glory that you've given me, I've given to them. So staying in the context of the prayer, in verse 4, it says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So Jesus is essentially saying that I, he glorified the Father by simply doing the work, the assignment that God the Father had given him. And so as Jesus is nearing the end of his earthly life, he has brought glory to god by finishing what the father had given him to do so in verse 22 it says the glory that you have given me i've given to them so part of his completion was to give to us to them the task of completing the work that jesus began and so in that way um, the glory that you have given me i gave to them so jesus is completing the mission and really inviting, inviting the disciples, inviting the followers into glory with him to do what God has asked us to do. It's it's a pretty amazing thing, I think. So, Jesus, we have work, they had work, and you and I, we all have work to do that Jesus has given us. There's not one believing person in this room who doesn't have work to do for Jesus. So the glory Jesus gives to the disciples is a continuation of his work. So let's take a look now at the next little parallel and I'll call, just call this the plea or the, the ask. And this is verses 21a 22b and 23a. So in verse 21 says that they may all be one just as you father are in me and I in you that they may also be in us. So the next Part says that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. You can hear what's on Jesus' heart, can't you? This is his prayer oneness. Oneness. Do you know, when you go back to Adam and Eve in the garden, just, just never forget that the very first expression of God's desire for humanity to understand oneness and unity started between a husband and a wife it became the first battle unit if you will for unity that's where it all started so let's take a look here even before we get to the or a little yeah before this in verse 11 and then verse 21 and verse 23 and just let just listen let these words sit on us a little bit holy father keep them in your name which you've given me that they may be one even as we are one that they may all be one just as you father are in me and i in you that they may also be in us that they may be one even as we are one i in them you and me that they may become perfectly one what's on his mind I'll just give you another sort of grouping of verses uh, that come before we get to John 17. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, this is my commandment, that you love one another these things I command you so that you will love one another. Jesus has something on his mind. It has a lot to do, I think, with how we love one another. (laughs) So if you were looking at a sort of a simplistic overview of the New Testament, you know, the, the Gospels, the four Gospels, essentially... Uh, reveal the life, ministry, and mission of Jesus. I mean, that's essentially what they do. And then the book of Acts really is this kind of transition book where the church begins to work and the disciples who were given the responsibility to further the glory of Jesus by doing his work. It's when they begin to head out and do that work. And so we see the birth of the church. We see many new converts and see a lot of courageous sometimes even persecution and suffering and so that's going on. but then you get to the epistles or paul's letters and while there's a lot of doctrine in those letters but really almost all of those letters have some significant portion of every one of them that essentially are trying to explain to us how to get along with each other they really are over a hundred times you're gonna read the phrase one another in the uh, epistles. And that's not about our vertical relationship with God, it is about our horizontal relationships one with another. In 1 Corinthians 12 12 12 and 27, it says this The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually you are members of it. So when we put our trust, put our faith in Jesus and turn and repent of our sin and say, Jesus, I need you to lead my life. I need you to forgive me. When we take that step, we are placed in the body of Christ. That's a... That's a pretty interesting thing to let yourself think about it. So the one another commands are not given necessarily to produce oneness or belonging or unity. Every command is given because it is the living, concrete, tangible expression of what oneness can and is supposed to look like. We are united by the presence of the Spirit of God in every believer God himself is in you and you are in him. I am in him. So I just wanna say as clear as I can to say we're one. We are one. Everybody in this room who has surrendered their life to Jesus possesses the spirit of God. We are one body in this room. We are one body. And so when we love one another, when we work at getting along, if you will, The amazing thing about this, in that oneness between the Father, Spirit, and Son, there's no competition. There's no comparison. There's none of that. There is distinction for sure. There are different roles. There's different responsibilities. There are different expressions of gifts. That's absolutely true. But it is a community marked by mutual submission, recognized authority, and a singular mission. Mutual submission, recognized authority, and a singular mission. As you know that when Jesus himself is walking on the earth, this is how Paul, this is just a little tiny bit of how Paul described him in Philippians 2. Jesus himself, God in the flesh, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, a slave, someone with no rights. Oneness is born out of humble submission. So in that picture, Jesus, the Father, and the Spirit, there's not one thing that's changed about their unity or their oneness at all. But Jesus has voluntarily put himself in a place that it wasn't a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. So the oneness wasn't changed, but the oneness flourished with submission. But man, was there a common mission? And this takes us to our third kind of parallel, if you will. The purpose, and this really is the why, so what is the ultimate purpose of this unity? Verse 21 says, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 23 says, so that the world may know that you sent me. But then there's this, other, this last little phrase put on here. And loved them even as you loved me. That sentence, you know, I don't know how many times I read this text while it's getting ready to do this. It took a while for that sentence to leap off the page at me and to figure out, oh, oh, that's what you're saying? Unity is never for the sake of just for the sake of unity, it serves God's purposes, it reveals some of the mystery that lives in the Trinity. Biblical unity has this purpose that the world might become convinced that Jesus was sent by God by looking at the unity of his body. You can imagine how the world changes if we place other people's needs ahead of our own. So, one of the key realities about being married, the smallest expression of that oneness, one of the key principles of that entire thing is to... Put another person's needs ahead of your own, to humble yourself. That's like one of the key, one of the key principles of oneness. To learn how to surrender one to another. So think about you know when you think about the amount of division there is in the world, virtually every corner and every part of it filled with greed and competition, comparison, lust, anger. I mean, it you know the world is filled with this struggle so then it brings us back to verse 23 and it says the same thing but it adds this phrase so that the world may know that you sent me so that's god wants us to see that unity so the world can recognize the authority that god has in this world and then but and love them even as you love me this, is just, this, this thing just fascinates me. He adds that phrase in the second statement. And, you know, I had to, I had to look this up because I, I needed to understand this. The scholar seemed virtually unanimous in seeing the them in that passage as not the world, but as the disciples he's praying for. It's not that he... We know that he loves the world. John 3.16 and many other places tell us that. But this, this prayer... Is focused on the disciples so here Jesus is speaking of a measure of God's love that honestly we can hardly comprehend this God's love for one who has come to believe that Jesus has been sent from God is equal to and absolute as God's love is for his own son we'll keep going the Greek word for even as means to the same degree or in the same way so what is the measure of and nature of God's love for you for me in Jesus? It's without limit. That I means it's infinite. It's without end. It's eternal. It's without conditional. There's no basis for this other than God. It's not based upon what we do or don't do. It's holy. It means it's flawless. It's good. It's infinitely superior to any kind of human love. And the truth is that all of our love for each other, in the best moments of our love for one another, they are a shadow. They are a little echo of the nature of God and His love for His own. There exists no measure of love in the universe that comes close to the love which God has for his own, his children. This helps me understand why Jesus is so concerned with our unity, with oneness. Stick with me. So when the world looks at God's people and sees division, this unity, they're not seeing the spiritual reality of a people who look like the Trinity. The evidence that Jesus is from God is tied to the evidence of our love for each other. And here, here's the key. This is the part I really want you to... This, when, this should change our life when we get this over time. The love we give to one another must ultimately be an expression of the love we have received. If our love for one another flows from anything other than the love which the Father loves the Son, it will not show the world that Jesus is from God. Jesus' prayer is that God would love us, you and me, just as Jesus himself is loved by the Father. I just, like, think, God loves us not as we deserve, but as Jesus deserves. Does that, like, download that. So, like, here's the thing. It's very easy. If you've been a Christian for a long time, it might be easy to intellectually assent to that truth. God loves us not as we deserve, but as Jesus deserves. But here's what I would say. I would say to the degree that that truth slowly grips our life, our belief, our heart attitudes, our faith, our confidence, to the degree that that grips us, we will change. It's why... You know, when, when we get hurt really badly and, and then we, we walk around sometimes for a lot of times, a, a seasons of our life where we're, we have a bitterness in us that we can't get rid of because somebody hurt us really badly. Well, one of the reasons that it's so hard to forgive, even when something's been terribly unjust and terribly difficult, because there's really not anything ever been more unjust than the cross. I mean, Jesus was 100% innocent. 100% innocent. And yet, while he was in his suffering, while the suffering was still going on, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Why did he do that, even in his humanity? Because he realizes how the Father loves him. So you can forgive when, when we finally get how much we've been forgiven. You can move towards towards a difficult circumstance, you can, you can be generous in a way that is way outside your comfort zone because you sense God leading you there because you know God loves you like he loves his son. And that, that is the home of our identity as a follower of Jesus. And so when when... When John tacked that little sentence onto this parallelism there between those two, it was a, it's a huge tack. <laughs> and he loved them even as you loved me. What a powerful thing. God loves us not as we deserve, but as Jesus deserves, which leads me to the conclusion a people must first know their love by God, that an infinite, eternal, unconditional, holy love in order to love each other in ways that will demonstrate the existence and the love of the Trinity. Guys, again, you know, this is the, this is the spiritual parable that is designed to live out in every believing marriage. I'm not saying it, it's designed to live that out in a very broken world. But I'm, what I'm saying to you is that's, that's the ideal. That was the goal. So the basis of our unity must be the love of God for us. Notice I didn't say our love for God. It's his love for us. That's the basis of our unity. So the core of unity, biblical unity, the kind of unity that Jesus is praying for is a unity. Here's the thing. That's a unity Satan cannot penetrate Divide or touch it because it's the love of God for us. He can, Satan can get all, all over my love for anybody. For my wife, for my kids. For I mean, Satan can attack that in a hundred different ways. And he'll try like crazy to attack our belief and our, and our receiving this love. But the fact is, it is the love of God for us. And it's so against our human nature. I've been trying for years and years and years to tell God I love him. And I've been trying for years and years and years to live my life in a way that that seemed obvious. Now, that's not wrong. I I want that to happen. But the thing that's been missing that's slowly growing as I'm getting older is I'm finally understanding that my love for God has a source and it's God's love for me. That's the source. God's invisible to me, but he lives in me, and so he can source my love for him. (laughs) I know it seems crazy, but that's it, it comes from God to us. Anyway, Satan can't penetrate God's love, which, you know, that's exactly what Jesus did on the cross, right? You can imagine Satan. I don't know what Satan knows and what he doesn't know. But you can imagine he may have thought he had defeated Jesus as he hit the head, headed for the cross, and then what happens? He gets on there and he says, "Father, forgive them; they don't know what they're doing." Father, into my hands I commend my into your hands I commend my spirit. Father, it is finished. Every one of those come out of the strength of Jesus' understanding of his love from the Father and then his love for us. And with that, I want to take that idea and walk us into our communion time. So if you've got your elements, should grab those. And I'm going to give you a a little bit, just a, a minute or two to do a little processing. I'm going to put a slide, a question up on the screen just for you to think about for a minute or two. The first question is how deep is your conviction that God loves you with the same measure of love that he loves the Son? And the second question for you to see is how do the elements you hold in your hands demonstrate just how much God loves you? Just take a minute and process that. How deep is your conviction that God loves you with the same measure of love that he loves the sun. I've always thought, even when I hold this communion element, I've really, I've struggled most of my life as a believer figuring out how do I ever love God enough? How am I ever faithful enough? How am I ever committed enough to express my love to Him in a way that brings me into His unity, into this oneness with Him? And I finally, as I've gotten older and grayer, finally understand that it's his love for me that brings me there. And this communion element, this piece of bread that is broken for us, is a lifetime, lifelong symbol of God's love pulling us there. Let's take the bread together. And the blood, you know, has the very same impact on us, but just a tangible expression of a life that's been poured out as the visible expression that God loves us the way he loves Jesus. Let's take the cup together. Obviously, this message gets to thinking a lot about the nature of god 's love. sometimes when you think about a word it 's helpful to maybe help you understand it if you could think about what its opposite might be. So you know think about what the opposite of love could be. you know it, it could be hate that 's certainly a viable option um, there 's probably a lot of opposites for love because there 's so many layers to it. Um, But I wonder if uh, we're actually missing the nature of God's love when we maybe camp on that idea of hate. So as we're studying John, it kind of made me want to go to a letter that he was writing near the end of his life when he was in exile, and 1 John. And so I turned over to 1 John 4 now, and he's an old man. And just pay attention to the echo you hear from these words that he's written in the Gospel and now is writing many years later In these epistles. In verse 7, dear friends, 4 7, he has, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. This is real love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us. And his love is brought to full expression in us. We know how much God loves us and we have put our trust in his love. God is love. And all who live in love live in God. And God lives in them. And the last one, such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. By the way, Love has a name there, it's called Jesus. If we're afraid, it's for fear of punishment and this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. So maybe the opposite of love is fear. In the context of living with each other in unity, fear is often the root of our struggle to love well. Perhaps fear of judgment or being misunderstood or not getting what we want or need. Fear of being wrong, fear of shame, The list is pretty endless. So I want to give us a chance here as we finish our worship time and sing a song in response to our study of the text called Standing in His Love, so why don't you stand together.